X-ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It's April 27, 2020. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. Yesterday, back in the day, April 26, 1869, classes began at Portland's first public high school. Professor J.W. Johnson, who went on to become the first president of the University of Oregon, led the original class of 45 students at Portland High School. That ended up being named Lincoln High School in the 1880s, and the high school was only the second public secondary school west of the Mississippi River. Go Cardinals. And on this day in history, Ulysses S. Grant was born. Go Generals. Today on The Local, your quick six headlines, a look at domestic violence during COVID-19 with Detective Tanya Wolstein of the Vancouver Police, and an interview with Ethan Knight, candidate for Multnomah County District Attorney. Reminder, it is 420 to May Day, the X-Ray Fun Drive. This moment needs all of us. So far, the drive is going really well, and we could use you. All you have to do is go to xray.fm, click the blue donate button, or if you want to talk to a live human being, call 503-233-9729. If you say the local, not only do we get a little donor bonus, but it'll also make them feel real happy. First up, it's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. After not abiding by Oregon's campaign finance law passed in 2018, Ted Wheeler says he will abide by it starting now. On Thursday, the Oregon Supreme Court upheld the people's will when they ruled the law voted in 2016 was, in fact, constitutional. The law caps campaign donations at $500 per donor. Wheeler chose not to follow those donation limits in his primary campaign. He argued the constitutionality was still up in the air. The Mercury has reported donations of tens of thousands of dollars to the mayor's re-election bid. In a statement of the Mercury, Wheeler said the elections office has suggested that city campaigns might not be bound by the ruling, but that he'd follow them anyway. What's going on there? Well, the Supreme Court case addressed county limits as distinct from the city limits, but the rules in the county law passed in 2016 are essentially identical to those passed in the city law in 2018. Wheeler's quote, to avoid even more confusion and to make it clear to voters that we agree contribution limits are now state law, we are going to adopt the voter approved limits without exception. Wheeler made no indication that he plans to return donations of more than $500. Scott Kotcher, a lawyer and active transportation activist, said, I can't think of another context where a party hung on to a bunch of money during legal wrangling, lost, and then didn't have to put things right. Wheeler did urge the Oregon legislature to establish more uniform rules around campaign finance in the 2021 session. This is also the position of business groups who don't want Measure 47, the initiative passed in 2006, to go into effect. Your daily dose of data. As of Sunday, health officials reporting Oregon's confirmed case count at 2,311, with 91 related deaths. A note, by the way, in terms of frequency of cases, Oregon has fewer reported cases per 100,000 people than every state in the union but the bustling metropoli of Alaska, Hawaii, and Montana. Meanwhile, how are Oregonians feeling about the state's leadership during this crisis? A DHM poll conducted last week found that only 6% strongly disagree with the stay-at-home order, and that's despite 30% of Oregonians who are putting off important health procedures due to coronavirus, also according to a DHM poll. And across state lines, the latest data from the Washington Department of Health shows 13,319 diagnosed cases and 738 related deaths. The coronavirus is creating unprecedented problems with the state budget, the Oregonian reporting. The state is looking at sudden and stiff declines from income taxes, capital gains, lodging, and fuel taxes. 
The effects are being felt across state agencies, but each is experiencing their own unique challenges. For example, Oregon Health Authority, the Employment Department, Department of Human Services have had a huge surge in demand for services. But others, like state parks visits and the activities that trigger lodging taxes, those have gone way down. This is one of the most important ways that government is different from business, by the way. During an economic crisis, demand for many products and services goes down, but demand for most government services goes up. Relatedly, the National Governors Association has requested $500 billion in aid from the federal government. So far, despite Mitch McConnell agreeing to come up with trillions of dollars for companies, individuals, and organizations, no money has been allocated for direct relief to state governments. And as a reminder, the Oregon state government is not allowed to run a deficit. A vast portion of Oregon's 40,000 state workers are working from home. As few as 50 have been put on paid leave. Senator Betsy Johnson said the May revenue forecast is going to be catastrophic. She said leaders need to start thinking about how to prepare for a long-term economic downturn. Whether that means suspension of not-yet-implemented programs, I'm quoting, or actual cuts, we have to prepare ourselves for a grim budget outlook. 85% of the general fund comes from personal income tax. That's a reminder. In the past months, Oregonians have filed more than 330,000 unemployment claims. That's double the number of claims made during the last Great Recession in total. Tim Day, the U of O economist, said the state economist's office is going to deliver a lot of bad news on every front all at once. We all know where this is going. If there is a silver lining, maybe just a bronze lining amidst the storm clouds, the state is sitting on a $2.5 billion rainy day fund. If it's used, two-thirds have to go to local jurisdictions. The rest goes to some specific services. None of that can be used to backfill the state budget. Activists are calling for quick and cheap bike lanes on Hawthorne. Hawthorne will be repaved soon, opening up the possibility of reconfiguring bike traffic. Just Friday, a new website, HealthierHawthorne.com, launched with suggestions for the repainting. The idea? A parked, protected bike lane with paint and cones extending from the Hawthorne Bridge to Southeast 50th. The conversation for safety on Hawthorne has been debated for decades, including in the 1997 Hawthorne Transportation Plan. Thanks to BikePortland.org for the breaking news. There was a huge traffic jam on West Burnside on Saturday. And it wasn't street racing, but steak traffic. I was going to go with meat racing, but that sounded kind of dumb. Ringside Steakhouse had a flash sale on Saturday morning, causing an epic traffic backup. Police showed up. The line reached over a mile up Burnside, and Ringside sold out in about 2.5 hours. Beef jam! And another food distribution news, New Seasons is requiring customers to wear face masks to protect workers after a handful of grocery store workers were reported as positive for COVID-19. Remember... Masks do protect you some, as long as you don't touch your face adjusting them a bunch. But masks help other people a bunch, against your breathing droplets, your surprise cough, or your sneeze. And roses and rainbows. Look for your ballot in the mail this week. The primary is May 19th. And lucky for us, we have vote by mail. Also, thank you to Eric Kim, a junior at Sunset High School. He's making face masks with clear plates over the mouth so people with hearing impairments can read lips and still be able to communicate. Go Apollos. Seattle plans to close 15 miles of streets to promote physical activity while social distancing, the Seattle Times reporting. Seattle will close six more lanes of residential streets to vehicle traffic to create space for pedestrians and bicyclists during the coronavirus outbreak. The aim is to give people more space to practice social distancing. Hello, is this the mayor of Portland? This is Mayor Jenny Durkin up the road in Seattle. Do I have an idea for you? Why does the mayor of Seattle sound like a 1930s wire reporter? We'll have to leave that to a future episode of The Local. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. I'm Jefferson Smith. 
Here's Emily Gilliland on what's next. Thanks, Jefferson. The stay-at-home order has meant for some more time with an abuser. In Portland, the 12 days after the emergency declaration, there was a 27% increase in domestic violence arrests. Now, an interview with Detective Tanya Wolstein of the Vancouver Police Department with more information and insight. First of all, tell us what you're an investigator of. Uh, I am a detective in the domestic violence unit at Vancouver Police Department. And you have been investigating what's been happening with domestic violence, yes? Yes. Here in Vancouver, at least in the city, uh, since uh, we've had the stay-at-home order, and it's actually about a week before, we've seen an increase in domestic violence assaults, about 29% over the five-year average for this same time span. We're seeing an even larger increase in our misdemeanor assaults, uh, which are up 39%. And what do you chalk, I mean, maybe it's obvious, do you basically chalk this up to stress level plus people being at home? What are you observing out there? Yeah, one of the biggest risk factors, and this isn't really well known, but one of the biggest risk factors, uh, especially for lethality in domestic violence cases, is a prior history of abuse paired with unemployment. Uh, and uh, we believe the reasons behind that are there's financial stress, there's self-worth stress, there's stress that causes them, you know, between the relationship and how are things going to happen, the unsurety, and that leads to aggravated violence um, or violence where perhaps there, there was none. And so that's, that's one of the major contributors, I believe, to this. Um, and the second would be that people are stuck kind of in a close quarters together, probably spending more time together. Uh, than they have previously. And how are those reports coming to you? Because I remember hearing, early, what are we talking, hearing, we reported that there was a reduction in child abuse case reporting and that that was a concern because so many of, such a large percentage of child abuse cases are reported by mandatory reporters that in large part are like folks at schools. And if kids aren't going to schools, there's less occasion to report. How is the reporting happening? How are these cases getting to you? So sometimes the victim will call in, uh, and a lot of times it's someone who's witnessed this. It's a neighbor, uh, it's somebody who was, you know, witnessed something at a grocery store or in a parking lot, or someone, you know, taking a walk that hears uh, an assault taking place. Anything else you'd want to say to a victim or potential victim? Um, just again that. You know, there are resources for you. The police are here for you. There are crisis hotlines here for you. Um, there are many people that are in your situation. The YWCA uh, is another resource. Um, NWK is another resource. We have so many resources here to help victims. And we are very passionate here at Vancouver Police Department about helping victims come out of these situations. We know that it's difficult. We know that it's it's something that... It's difficult to do when you love someone who is hurting you. And we do understand that, and we absolutely want to be there to help in any way possible. And we we have resources on our website. There's resources on the YWCA website. They are still working. They are still there. Uh, we are here to help keep you safe and do the best job we can for you. What would be the thing that you want people who are not in the binary relationship that is a relationship of violence what do you want their neighbor to hear or anybody else to hear? Um, I would say that, you know, there's, there's certain ways to, to approach things. One, I would encourage neighbors to report. 
because the police showing up and and possibly taking someone to jail or at least showing up and interrupting the situation could potentially prevent a serious injury or or death um and and calling i know people are hesitant to call and i understand that but if you think someone near you is is being hurt i would encourage you to call because you you have the ability to help prevent those sorts of things and i would say if you have a, a friend or you see someone who's who's in this kind of relationship you know yelling at them and telling them to leave in front of the abuser is not going to to help that situation if anything it might make it worse for that victim once they arrive home uh, and they're in a private place you know being able to you know talk to the victim privately or, or approach the victim in a more subtle way is, is a better way to do it calling the police um, having some kind of intervention that way is, is always uh, better for the victim um, and, and to healthcare providers, I know that's a big focus um, with healthcare up here and we partner with um, Peace Health and Legacy, you know, making sure that when you ask a victim or a, a patient that they are alone and not with someone else and saying, you know, do you feel safe at home? Have, you know, anything happened that it's when they're by themselves, that they're not with someone who could potentially be an abuser and that's one thing that I know that we've had many discussions about here um, because obviously the healthcare system is is under a great deal of stress right now and they have many other things and it's easy to move past that question but it's just so incredibly important to ask. Detective Tanya Wolstein, thank you so much for spending the time. Thanks for your service and really appreciate you offering that perspective as well as that information to our listeners. Really appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me on. Next up is an interview with Ethan Knight, candidate for Multnomah County District Attorney. Ethan and I talk about how the justice system has shaped Portland, the cases that have impacted his life, and advocating for the community. Oregon District Attorneys are elected in every county and serve four-year terms. This election cycle, Multnomah County is voting for a district attorney to fill the role when current District Attorney Rod Underhill retires. Ethan Knight has over two decades of experience as a prosecutor. Now he's running to be Multnomah County's DA. Good morning, Ethan. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Well, welcome to X-Ray. We're excited that you are here. Well, fantastic. I, ha- I had a wonderful mail day yesterday, and <laughs> I got my voter pamphlet. <laughs> I have it open to the very last page where your race is featured and has yourself and Mike Schmidt, who are running for Multnomah County District Attorney, but tell us, who are you and why are you running? No, absolutely. Uh, I'll tell you first uh, that I'm running because I love this community. I grew up in Portland and went to Portland Public Schools, uh, went away and then came back uh, and began a career in public service uh, because I wanted to be an advocate for the community and for the people of this community. Uh, I've spent over two decades uh, as a state and federal prosecutor where I've handled uh, virtually every type of case uh, that our system sees. Uh, from the most serious cases, the robberies and the homicides, to environmental crimes. I've prosecuted a number of polluters. And in the federal system, I've handled public corruption, international terrorism, uh, and domestic terrorism, uh, doing a considerable amount of cutting-edge work uh, against right-wing extremists uh, nationally. Uh, and throughout that time, I've stayed active in the community as well. Uh, I've been very active uh, in the legal community, um, helping provide legal services uh, to underprivileged folks in the community. And I've done a lot of work also uh, to help uh, underprivileged youth, both as a member of the Governor's Juvenile Crime Ad- uh, Advisory Committee uh, and as a board member of the Boys and Girls Club. 
so that really brings me, I guess, uh, to your listeners today and why I'm running for district attorney. Mm. You know, I was thinking about uh, your career and your resume and being in this community for so long. I, too, um, grew up in a community, you know, spent my entire school career in one place. And I started to think about how the justice system shaped my own community. And I was wondering if you could give your thoughts on your experience in Portland. How has the justice system shaped this community in your lifetime? Well, I mean, you know, in any community, uh, and certainly in Portland, in our larger community, you know, the justice system is an integral, critical piece. It's one that folks don't often think about, uh, but it matters for every single person, whether or not uh, they know it or not. Uh, you know, and I think in this community, you know, there are good things and bad things in our justice system over the years. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, there's been a lot of cutting-edge progressive work in the district attorney's office that folks haven't realized really for the past two decades. You know, I helped create one of the first alternative courts uh, here in Oregon 20 years ago with the community court. We've done that, and that's really been reflective, I think, of the values of this community and recognizing um, that sometimes there are different approaches to the justice system. And the other piece mm-hmm. of that, too, is uh, the justice system protects everyone. You know, one of the things I learned early on as a young district attorney, uh, is that, you know, the victims of crime are often poor and from underserved communities, uh, and people forget that. And so when I think we talk about the justice system in our community, uh, to me, a lot of that is advocating on behalf of the least fortunate and protecting them, and that's something we've done well. Mm -hmm. You know, there's always uh, room for improvement. I think over the two decades I've been in the system, we've I think appropriately uh, realize that, uh, you know, incarceration for a lot of drug offenses may not be the best answer uh, and that our focus should be on other things. But that's one of the best things, I think, about the system is the ability to recognize deficiencies and change them as we move along uh, and do what's right when we know we've got something right. Mm. Now, when I looked at your website, your homepage says this race is about leadership, which is a provocative statement. What does that mean to you? Well, you know, I think with the district attorney's race, it's one that folks don't know a lot about but has a significant impact in the community. But it's a job and a role uh, that requires a level of expertise uh, that really makes a difference. And to me, this race is about the credibility and leadership, particularly in a time right now uh, where we're in an emergent crisis and we need expertise, I think, increasingly to do the vital functions that citizens you know, expect us to do. So when we talk about this race, it really is about who has the credibility and experience to lead the district attorney's office, which has a core function, and that is to prosecute crime uh, and to seek justice. And that's, to me, what the race is really about at its core. Mm. Does the office also have a responsibility around restoration? And what does that look like? Or what does that mean to you? Absolutely. Uh, You know, I think that, you know, we talk about a lot of these collateral issues in the criminal justice system. Now, in understanding, of course, that, you know, by statute and by law, that office prosecutes uh, cases. And last Mm -hmm. year, that was over 10,000 cases. But when we talk about restoration, I think, to me, that's the idea of keeping in mind the whole person. Uh, Typically, when we talk about restorative justice with victims uh, and sort of thinking outside the traditional confines of you know, charging, punishment, uh, and then moving on to the next case. And it's part of, I believe, uh, and this is something I've learned in my 20-plus years handling cases, of keeping in mind both the collateral consequences of prosecuting someone and the larger impact on the community in making a decision. 
So restoration could mean implementing programs that are mindful of larger community needs, neighborhood needs, uh, needs of specific populations, both with victims and defendants. Uh, so that's, to me, what restoration means, and it should guide larger policy questions, uh, but not detract us from the core mission of the office. Mm. Now, when folks are evaluating this race, they're, they're looking at experience. And when I read the, the voters' pamphlet here, which I happen to have in front of me, um, one of the comments on, on your statement says, we can trust Ethan to strengthen community partnerships and programs. How do we know that we can trust you? I think that's a, a really also important part in evaluating the the candidates, not only the experience, but sort of what it's going to look like moving forward. What is? How can we trust you as a candidate? Well, because, I, you know, I've been doing it for 20-plus years, uh, and I have the trust of people who work in this area and the support of people who work in this area and the understanding and the credibility within the office I'll be leading. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really the, you know, I think one of the biggest distinctions between my opponent and I really and why folks should look carefully at the endorsements in that voters' pamphlet. Uh, because mine come from the professionals who do the work. Uh, so we talked about trusting someone to do the work um, and to have the credibility to bring the community into the fold and where it matters. It's ne- going to need to be someone who has the relationships with the people who work in the criminal justice system uh, and who understand the legal community and the legal system, because that is, of course, at its core what the office is about. It's important to have that outreach and bring everyone into the fold but at the end of the day, those 10,000 cases come through our courts, mm-hmm. uh, and I have the experience and credibility to make sure that's done in a way that's fair uh, and equitable. Mm. I was reading a summary of this race in the pamphlet media, and they characterize this race as a case of two opposites. Do you think <laughs> that that's an accurate assessment of you and your opponent? Uh, well, it depends if you're talking about form or substance. I mean, I mm. think it's two opposites in the sense that, you know, uh, you know, my opponent's background is largely political uh, and policy-oriented, uh, and mine is as a lawyer and as an advocate and as a prosecutor, which is what the job is. I mean, I think on a lot of issues, we're fundamentally the same. Um, you know, when you drill down into some policy issues, some were not, but many were are. So I wouldn't say we're polar opposites in that regard. But certainly voters will have a choice of whether or not they – want to choose someone who knows this work, is supported by the people in the office, supported by the current district attorney, uh, and someone who's coming from the outside with more of a policy orientation, not supported by those stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And so in that respect, I do think it is a choice of opposites. Mm. And when you just mentioned equity and justice, and we see um, disparity in the justice system, especially with folks who identify in communities of color, how do you define equity? Well, I mean, I think equity is ensuring that every person who comes into the system, defendant, victim, uh, is treated fairly. Uh, And that's an oversimplification, of course, and it's an aspirational goal. Uh, But it's one that I think is critical in the justice system. And it's one that we have not always met, candidly. I mean, I don't think, you know, you'd have to be living uh, under a rock not to recognize some of the historic injustices in the criminal justice system. Uh, in mistakes in the manner we've implemented policies and sentencing and the way we've treated victims and defendants. Uh, so to me, equity is something, uh, it's not like a light switch. It's not like one day you've fixed it or you've you know achieved what you need to achieve. It's something that we need to be mindful of every day and what are we doing right or wrong or how can we improve and how can we make this system uh, an institution uh, and institutions something that everyone can trust. Mm-hmm. Do we need criminal justice reform? You know, I think absolutely in the sense that it depends how you define it, right? I mean, I think there are things we need to fix. 
um, you know, I hear this sort of reform writ large. I sort of push people, what do you mean? What do you want? Because there are things we need to change. On the other hand, I don't think we need to dismantle the entire system and, you know, move away from jury trials and, you know, representation of the defendants under Fifth and Sixth Amendment. So it's sort of on the spectrum of reform, what are we talking about? Mm-hmm. But absolutely, there are things that need to be changed. And what are some of those things that you would like to change as district attorney? You know, to me, uh, a couple things. I mean, I think we need to continue focusing on uh, pretrial diversion and addiction and mental health services for low-level offenses. I think part of the problem is now um, we sort of say that and we pay it lip service, but we don't commit the resources um, to the prosecution side to ensure that if defendants come through the system, uh, we are adequately supervising them to reduce recidivism. Um, And that's, again, a resource issue and people recognizing that that is indeed part of the system, uh, law enforcement, probation, to get people in addiction services. You know, but the other big piece to me that I see in need of reform uh, that, you know, I, I mentioned to you earlier is the need to more robustly address uh, issues of poverty um, in the system. And that, you know, there there's some racial over-representation that needs to be addressed along those lines as well. But, uh, you know, we often forget, I think, um, that, you know, people, victims and defendants coming through the system are disproportionately represented at the lower income ends of the of the community, and we need to do more to address that piece, uh, the poverty piece that comes to the system. And I'll give you a few examples. I mean, cash bail, uh, replacing cash bail, you know, both my opponent and I agree on that. But I think that kind of misses the mark. I published or wrote an op-ed a while back about legislation to address the fines and fees attendant to the criminal justice system that often penalize folks who do everything right and leave the system. Um, but are trailed for the rest of their lives by fines and fees. You know, it's that kind of thing. It's legal services uh, for folks in dealing with expungements and other sort of areas where there are collateral consequences to conviction. So there's things that seem insignificant, but I think we need to focus our energy and efforts on reform uh, in a way that's mindful of the whole person and the way poverty impacts the criminal justice system and vice versa. And so how do you get that done? I think you probably have lots of listeners who are agreeing with you right now. Yes, we need to change the overrepresentation uh, of, of particularly race, particularly with regard to race in the criminal justice system. We want to tackle fees and cash bail. How do you get that done? Well, I mean, and, and this, I, I think, speaks to, you know, why I'm the best candidate in the race. I mean, you get that done by having the credibility and understanding of the criminal justice system. I mean, the reality is, like any other system, um, you know, it's a hard one to tear apart, and I'm not suggesting that. And so the things you can do, I mean, first of all, let's understand that the district attorney's role is to run an office of attorneys who uh, try cases and prosecute cases. Um and so you can implement and influence policy within your own office to a certain range. I'm proud to be unanimously supported by everyone in that office, and I would have attorneys focus on ensuring that sanctions or sentences imposed on those lower-level cases are mindful of the impacts they have disproportionately on the poor uh, and mindful of those little decisions that can impact someone in the long run. Big picture, uh, more broadly, I mean, there is a legislative piece to this. That's not the leading role of the district attorney. Uh, but I'm willing to work with the District Attorneys Association, even though I don't agree with everything they do, to try and implement and bring about some of these changes uh, to cash bail, uh, to fines and fees, uh, where you can at the legislative level uh, statewide to try and bring some of those changes about in a way that I think will have a long-term impact 
on people who are impacted by the criminal justice system. Mm. Ethan, where can folks find out more information about you and how to support your campaign? Uh, no, that uh, a question I'm more than happy to answer. They can go <laughs> I'll to give the you an easy one, an easy one. <laughs> the easy one, exactly. Uh, electethanight.com, which has uh, you know a variety of information on how to get involved, uh, who our supporters are, and a, a number of substantive pieces about physicians uh, that we've taken in the campaign and we believe are critical to the voters of Multnomah County. Excellent. Ethan, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. Have Take a good care. day. Okay, bye-bye. Again, that's Ethan Knight, candidate for Multnomah County District Attorney. You can find out more at electethanknight, that's K-N-I-G-H-T, dot com. Thanks to Tanya, thanks to Ethan for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Again, we'd love your support at X-Ray. Become a member at 15 bucks a month. Shout out The Local. You get a cool new t-shirt or record tote. You become a member, you can go to xray.fm slash donate or call 503-233-9729 to support the work. We just got a little Facebook page. You can like us. Well, I hope you like us at facebook.com slash thelocalportland. Story ideas, again, you can send us an email at thelocal at xray.fm. Most importantly, I suppose, is rating and reviewing and sharing the podcast. We appreciate you. We can be together while we're apart. Tomorrow, we'll be back with an update on ballot measures with Kate Kay and our interview with Rich Vile candidate for Secretary of State. Talk to you tomorrow. In the meantime, stay home, stay connected, and thank you, democracy.